0: This is Macro Horizons, Episode 65, Extended Staycation, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 20th. And a reminder, the transition from backwardation to contango can be a very slippery slope. please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The price action in the Treasury market over the course of the last week was remarkably muted given the context of everything that is going on in the global economy. We've seen 10 year yields continue to trade in a definable range of roughly 56 basis points to 78 basis points. Now, we expect that this will continue for the foreseeable future, which is relatively short in Treasury space, but call it the next three or four trading sessions as we get a better sense of how risk assets will interpret the guidelines issued by the White House in terms of reopening the economy. It seems very clear that there will not be a single date in which the entire U.S. economy reopens, but rather that this will be transitioned in over the course of the next month or two. As a result, the economic data throughout the second quarter will be more useful in judging the depths of the global recession rather than trying to estimate any momentum to recover. The recovery has been clearly delayed well into the second half of the year, Whether that is a third quarter or a fourth quarter event remains to be seen. For the time being, we continue to see the Treasury market holding that very tight range. And the most interesting price action thus far has been what's transpired in the tips market. Breakevens on Thursday dropped roughly 15 basis points. Now, part of that is a function of the fact that energy prices continue to drift lower, remaining under a fair amount of pressure that's going to be a function of global demand as well as the supply glut. How that translates through to longer-term inflation expectations is an important question at the Fed and elsewhere. But with 10-year break-evens at 106 basis points, the clear and present danger is to the downside, not the upside. The treasury market continues the recent pattern of ignoring the economic data. We saw another dismal rise in initial jobless claims, A sharp decline in retail sales, and the Treasury market, by and large, simply shrugged it off. In fact, the equity market shrugged it off as well, which continues to be an important indicator of where broader investor sentiment lies. The sensitivity of domestic equities to progress reported out of Chicago on a treatment for the coronavirus is very telling about the near term risks facing the market. We've priced in a dramatic contraction in the U.S. and global economy, then now the conversation is transitioning to how long will it take for the domestic economy to recover? And of course, what does that recovery ultimately look like?
2: So guys, what if
0: stocks threw a
2: rally and treasuries didn't come?
0: Well, that's exactly what we saw last week. We saw stocks rally well off the lows and the treasury market do effectively nothing. If anything, rates were incrementally lower on the week. I'll argue that the broader narrative has been changing from assessing the damage from the coronavirus to estimating the reopening date for the domestic economy. Now, the White House has come out with some guidelines as far as what it will take for a state-by-state reopening or lifting of the stay-at-home orders. And this has really crafted the conversation to sometime in the middle of May, perhaps at the end of May. Now, we have seen in the Northeast, the New York state recommendation extended two weeks to May 15th and that will presumably hold true for most of the states in the region. The market's current focus is how quickly does consumption come back in the second half of the second quarter and the beginning of the third. Now, in terms of price action in treasuries, 30-year yields are at roughly 125, And 10-year yields seem to be stuck closer to 65 basis points than 75 basis points. A big portion of that is a function of what we have seen transpire in the energy sector. The front-month WTI contract is at its lowest level since 2002, and frankly, not that far from marking the lowest level for the millennium, which is 1670 The risk is that inflation expectations lose their long-held anchor. Keep in mind, the Fed was already struggling to create demand-side inflation prior to the pandemic, so this just complicates matters, even though the Fed has provided an unprecedented amount of monetary policy accommodation, and we have seen some significant efforts from the White House and Congress on the fiscal side as well.
3: On the stimulus front, one new development in the past week was the actual launch of the commercial paper funding facility. As of Wednesday, which is the most recent data that we have, take up had been 974 million. So still well below what this facility potentially could be, but starting to indicate some pickup going forward. And Ian I want to circle back because an argument you had made is that we're approaching a potential reopening date. This might be a non-consensus way to think about it, but I really don't care about any individual date. If you look at what the White House laid out, we have 50 different states with three different phases. So this is going to be 150 different partial openings. And frankly, some of these are going to go forward and some of these are going to go backwards. So the idea that there's going to be one moment in which things broadly reopen, color me skeptical. Now, you could make an argument that some of the regions are going to be highly correlated, the Midwest, the West Coast, the East Coast. Fair enough, that limits down the number of dates somewhat, but the reality is there are going to be a huge number of moving pieces. The reason I circle back to that when thinking about the policy influence is that both monetary and fiscal support is going to be needed for a rather extended period of time. Even if we start to move into some of these phase one reopenings where restaurants are partially open, for example, this still means that it's likely that we're going to see an extension of the PPP program on the fiscal side, the Fed continuing to run with low rates and a quantitative easing program. And frankly, it's entirely possible that we also start to see new acronyms, new programs get thrown out as the official sector tries to calibrate the response in order to at least keep the economy going somewhat.
0: Yeah, actually, I completely agree with that stance. You suggested it being a bit off consensus, and I'd actually say that my interpretation based on the client questions that I'm getting and the information I'm gathering is that most people are expecting a staged reopening, but everyone likes a specific date and something for markets to focus on, which is why I think investors are leaning towards a focal point for some reopening. And to your point, it is going to be a very long time before the U.S. economy is fully open and functioning in the way that it was in 2019. Moreover, even once the full reopenings have officially occurred behavior will have changed, perhaps not permanently, but for the foreseeable future. Consumption patterns will be different. Social gathering habits will have changed. The restaurant and hospitality industries will be materially different for a very long time. And that is, I think, to your point, John, the challenge at this stage is gauging how much of that do we already as a market expect and how much of it is going to be a surprise. An increase in the amount of treasuries that the Fed is actively buying, I would characterize as a surprise at this point. An extension of PPP or any of the other Fed programs focused on Main Street, I wouldn't be as surprised with that. I don't know, Ben, what's your take?
2: I completely agree with both of you, given the fact that even once quote unquote reopenings begin, the economy by no means is going to be back to where it was just a couple months ago it will take several months, several quarters even for the economy to get back to where it was before all of this began. And so to me, what that means is even though the take up in something like the commercial paper facility has been slow to begin, the fact that those facilities exist and still have capacity to serve the roles that they were designed to do means that the economic benefit from the corporate credit facility, the commercial paper facility, the muni facility, will continue to aid in the recovery. And the fact that some of these measures like the PPP have already been used to their maximum capacity certainly reinforces the notion that we could get a
3: re-upping of some of the already implemented policies or even something new. On the QE front, one nuance I'd like to emphasize is that The idea that they're going to expand purchases from here is nonsense. 100% that's not going to happen. The question instead is what do they taper to? So currently they're buying to call it $30 billion a day in treasuries. They're going to continue to taper that. But even if they pull it back to $10 billion, which is almost one-eighth of the pace they were going a couple weeks ago, that's still over $200 billion per month that's almost 5 times faster than most of the prior QE programs. So Ian, I guess a question that I've been debating and that I've been talking with clients with is when the Fed stops tapering their treasury program, what pace do they level off at? Do they keep doing these daily passes? Do they go to something like 50 billion per month, 100 billion per month? How are you thinking about it? And while obviously you can't throw out a precise number, what do you think is a range of
0: reasonable expectation? A lot of that is going to come down to market functioning, the level of liquidity that is being demonstrated in the treasury market, and at the end of the day, and I think that this is the most important aspect of it, it really is about signaling to investors that the Fed is going to be in this process for the long haul. Once the Fed ends or slows its tapering, we will get a better sense from risk assets and from investor behavior as to exactly what the market will be comfortable with. To your point, we're running well above the levels that we saw after the last financial crisis, but it's a different world. The market is larger the deficits that are going to be funded are far more significant. And it's not an issue that originated through financial engineering, whereby any expansion of the balance sheet is going to come up against the same political backlash that we saw in 2008 and 2009. Rather, it's a pandemic. The Fed is doing everything that they possibly can to make sure that the economy continues to function, both Financial markets, as well as on the ground. So, I think it's far less relevant where the Fed ends its tapering and far more important the signaling associated with that. So, if the Fed says, okay, we have gotten to a level where we're at, call it $100 billion a month in QE, we think that is sufficient to keep the level of liquidity we would like to see in the Treasury market in place. And we're flexible or Prepared to act, or any of the phrases that we have seen over the course of the last several months, I think that that will be more than sufficient to keep investors comfortable with the Fed's intervention in the Treasury market. Let's not forget there's also chatter about introducing a cap for yields in the front end. If that comes to fruition, then all of a sudden the outright level to which the Fed tapers its purchases becomes almost irrelevant because they will be defending a level. And in defending the level, they will purchase any amount of securities necessary.
3: On the front end yield cap, one thing that will be interesting to watch is what's the impact of supply on the overall rate levels? And will that dislocate interest rates from something that the Fed's more comfortable with? The reality is that over the past couple weeks, Treasury has issued something like $800-900 in cash management bills. They've set all-time records in some bill tenors, and they're increasing coupon issuance. Where has is that put bills? Well, they're sitting right in the middle of 0 to 25 basis points. Moreover, one of Brainerd's arguments for capping rates further out the curve is the idea that you want to flatten things out to call it two, three, five years. Well, fair enough, but two-year yields are already at 20 basis points. Three-year yields are already at 25 basis points. So, you know, Ian, you're absolutely right that communication is the challenge, the signaling is the challenge. So a yield curve control could help deepen that commitment, though I'm a bit skeptical that it'll actually have any substantial impact on pricing if
0: only because we've already priced to a much lower regime going forward. Exactly. And that's what we see across the curve. We see two-year yields at 20 basis points and 10s at, call it, 65. I would not be surprised to see two-year yields set record lows over the course of the next month or so. Now, granted, we're only five basis points away from that. And as you point out, John... This is already priced into the market. The potential for some type of yield curve control in the two or three-year sector is known. On its realization, is there downward pressure on rates? Perhaps. But it's not going to be 20 basis points worth. It might be two, three, maybe four. So I think that in a broader context, when we look at the overall yield complex, it's important to keep in mind the Fed controls the front end of the market, they might choose to extend that control further out. And if and when that occurs, that will aid the broader steepening of the yield curve that we've been anticipating. If we look at twos tens, the spread is currently at about 43 basis points. We got as steep as 55 basis points recently. And I still look at that level as a reasonable target. I mentioned earlier about the significant amount of stimulus in the system. Traditionally, one would think that the second-order impact of that is going to be inflation. Yes, we will get there. It's unclear to me whether that is an event that occurs in the first half of this year or well into the second, if not in 2020. Nonetheless, eventually, inflation will be back on the radar. For the time being, however, it seems that deflation is far more topical. The Downward pressure on the energy complex, combined with what is presumably going to happen to housing and rent over the course of the next few months, has skewed the market's expectations for headline and core CPI toward the downside. Now, Clarita has already come out and taken the stance that the events which will occur over the next coming months will not be deflationary. However, that's the risk and that's what the market is worried about. So it'll be fascinating to see with break-evens where they are, roughly 105 in 10-year space, whether inflation expectations ultimately do lose their anchor and drift lower.
2: Yeah. And on the point about oil, the past week, two weeks in particular, has represented an important inflection point, The initial drop in crude prices was obviously a supply story. It was the breakdown of negotiations between OPEC members, which led to that initial sharp move lower. Add on top of this, the demand shock from the virus and the weakness we've seen across the energy complex makes a lot of sense. However, recently, we've seen that supply issue resolve itself. Production cuts are coming from a variety of member nations. However, we haven't seen a recovery. We've actually seen further weakness. And to me, that reemphasizes the importance of the demand side of the equation. And again, unfortunately, ties it all back into the recovery from the virus, where there was once a time when supply cuts were pointed to as sort of the great hope to help oil recover, now we've learned that it's really going to take moving through this pandemic and some semblance of a return to life as normal and what that implies for
3: energy demand in order to see crude really get off the map. And looking at the Brent crude contract curve, so basically what contracts are trading at what prices in the future? Yes, it's upward sloping, meaning the market's pricing higher crude prices in the future, but not really all that much. Out through mid 2021, Brent crude futures are still below $40 a barrel. That's not Testing 20, but that's still going to cause a lot of pain in some of the high-yield oil and gas sectors of both the U.S., but also the global economy.
2: So are you telling me we're very close to being able to use the word
0: backwardation? Yes, but alas, we're still in contango. Man, I really hope our listeners grade us on an oil curve. That would be a slippery slope. In the week ahead we anticipate that the treasury market will continue to hold the range and we'll have a watchful eye on the shape of the yield curve. Two's tens between 40 and 50 basis points represents reasonable trading parameters to anticipate over the next few days, and therefore any breakout will be notable. All else being equal, we expect that that breakout will be to the upside and continue to target 55 basis points in twos tens. The economic data offerings on the horizon are very limited. We have existing home sales on Tuesday, which will help provide some context for the impact of the pandemic. The inflationary implications from downward pressure on the housing market are going to be important over the coming quarters. OER and rent will provide downward pressure for the core inflation series. This will be particularly troubling for a Fed who was, even before the pandemic, struggling to generate the type of demand-side inflation consistent with upward pressure on wages. It's going to be quite some time before the Fed needs to truly be concerned with inflation, and instead, the fight against deflation will continue raging worldwide. With all the disappointing economic data that has come out both on the U.S. economy, as well as the figures from China within the last week, There seems little question that the market has shifted away from trading the realized economic data and emphasizing the upcoming transition from a locked down real economy to one that is slowly reopening. To this end, we'll be watching any incremental headlines on the state and local level. In terms of re-engaging production. We do anticipate this will be a slow process, so not only will the consumption figures not really reflect an economy back online until the second half, but also the implications for other asset classes, not least of which being the energy sector, will be much more difficult to estimate until we're well into the second half of the year. Looking ahead even further, on April 29th, we will get our first glimpse at the first quarter's GDP figures. As has been the case with much of the economic data during the pandemic, the error bands for the consensus will be very wide. And as a result, while the headline figures will certainly help recast expectations for growth going forward, we anticipate yet again, a muted response to the incoming data. From a technical perspective, we're seeing a pretty consistent shift in momentum. The oversteep conditions that were evident in the yield curve have transitioned, and now, generally speaking, stochastic's favor a reflattening of the curve. This is especially evident in twos In the equity market, conditions are still technically overbought. However, we are reminded that although the traditional resolution for such conditions would be a drift lower in prices, by simply holding the prevailing range, we can see such conditions effectively burned off. It will be fascinating to see how this plays out in the context of the Broader bounce in equities, which seems to be driven not only by a significant amount of accommodation provided by the Fed, but also the ongoing efforts of the administration and Congress to push through additional fiscal stimulus. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the lockdown orders extend nationwide, we expect the prospect of a staycation has forever lost its allure. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macro As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingan.com at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein.